Welcome to SEL Radio, a podcast where we explore the intersections of history, philosophy, culture, and language while combating ethnocide and cultivating Eftopia. My name is Luna, and I'm here with Barrett, the founder and philosopher-in-chief of the Sustainable Culture Lab. Yeah, thanks for the introduction. Yeah, that we're doing exactly what Luna just said. <laughs> Excited for part two of the American Cycle. Last time we talked about the founding stage, and today we're going to be talking about the second stage of the American Cycle, abolition. Barrett, I was wondering if you kind of wanted to give a super brief overview of and a recap of like the founding stage from what we talked about last time. Okay, should I do a recap of the founding stage and the cycle or just the founding stage? Let's just do the founding stage. Just the founding stage. Okay, the founding stage, real simple. It's when America tries to balance ethnocide, which is the destruction of culture and while keeping the people with democracy. And you can see pretty easily that democracy where all men are created equal, each person has an equal opportunity to uh, participate in the democracy and vote clearly wouldn't wouldn't work with a philosophy of destroying people's culture while keeping the people. There's clear inequality and ethnocide and the, the faith of democracy is that it, it, it goes towards equality. And so the founding stage is, is that. And you can see from uh, three-fifths compromise, the Electoral College, just the fact that there are slaveholding states and free states, that America tried to have this balance uh, between the two. And what ends up happening is it gives a disproportionate amount of power to the ethnocidal slaveholding racist components of the South of America. And there you go. And the second iteration of the founding era is Jim Crow. And you can see the parallels right there where they tried to have Jim Crow exists within democracy, which is ethnocide. And, you know, so yeah, that's, that's the founding era. How's, how was that? That made a lot of sense. <laughs> that was a great recap. And Perfect. I think it's important to highlight what you said, that we have already gone through two iterations of the American cycle. And as we've talked about last time, we could be on the cusp of a third, but hopefully not, as we don't want to see a further reinvention of enslavement and how that and just ethnocidal foundations of America, hoping that we're going to break out of this, uh, out of the American cycle this, this time around. But I'm, I'm excited to talk about this next stage of the American cycle abolition, because it's a word that was thrown around a lot this summer. And a lot of people came to a real new sense of like, abolition, what it means, how to fight for it, how to be an advocate for abolition. Do you, would you mind explaining this stage of the American cycle, how it's like played out before in the past, in those past two cycles? And maybe also kind of like a, a culminating one word to describe this stage of the cycle, if you could. <laughs> yeah. So the abolitionist era is basically the factions of America that try to abolish ethnocide and whatever the manifestation is at the time. And so the first time, the first abolition was the abolitionist movement that wanted to abolish slavery. And 
know, from from there, the abolitionist movement took many fat, many different iterations. But, you know, I think one thing when we talk about abolition in the U.S. is we kind of talk about it from a, a white perspective where like white people are trying to abolish slavery and we don't incorporate the fact that like clearly enslaved people wanted to abolish slavery too. You know, like the Underground Railroad was without a doubt, well, I might not be able to abolish it at scale, but I could abolish it for myself and the people that I can take with you. If I can abolish it one person at a time, that's still progress. You know, that's the Underground Railroad. The amount of attempted slave rebellions, the amount of time that slaves have tried to escape. Those are all manifestations of abolishing slavery you know we're, we're trying to do it at a, at a micro level and a macro level and so the black community in america at the founding existed to abolish slavery it's just you, if you don't have the power to do it at a macro level you're just going to do it at a micro level as best as you can clearly the the white community in america the ones that wanted to abolish slavery they had greater capital and resources and freedom in America, and they could attempt to do it at a, at a more macro level, where there might be a, a school in Ohio that says that they're going to uh, teach Black people how to read. And so if you escape and you get, you know, that's a thing. And we'll, we'll have policies to, uh, you know, and then we'll have debates in Congress about should we expand slavery to the new territories that are becoming states? You know, these are... The, the larger abolition conversations that that happened and eventually you know the abolitionist movement just grew and grew and grew and became the republican party and the the election of lincoln an abolitionist president sparked the south launching the civil war because the fear of abolition was so was so strong that they said that they couldn't let an abolitionist run america because it would destroy their way of life and so abolition it happens alongside the founding era. Like it's not that the founding era stops and abolition begins. It's that they're in conflict entirely. And there's definitely going to be pivotal moments where abolition becomes more within the cultural narrative and more prevalent. The creation of the Republican Party is a, is a key example. Um, but that that's how abolition works in the first the first phase i think i think it's really really interesting how like the language of abolition has begun has gotten even more important nowadays and i think there's a lot of positives and some subtle negatives to to the language because how i see the second iteration of abolition is it was to abolish jim crow that 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 was the that was the narrative and so one way for the black community to abolish Jim Crow was just the great migration. You know, there, you didn't need to leave the South under cover of darkness, hiding from house to house to make it to the North. You could just get in a car and pack up and leave. You could do it above ground, you know? And so I think we don't, as a society, I don't think we talk about the great migration as part of abolition, uh, which it should be. And I don't think we talk about it in the same vein as the Underground Railroad, which it should be. You know, it's literally just black people 
fleeing the same type of terror in the ways that are available to them. And that's that that's it. At the same time, due to black people having a greater level of influence in society, such as we were able to flee the South in during the daylight above ground, well, you know, clearly we did a above ground before, but you know, just in a car on a road um, and then broad daylight meant that we had more agency. And so eventually we created structures and 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 got obtained law degrees and ran businesses to make it so that we could actively campaign to abolish Jim Crow. And the civil rights movement, I think, was the culmination of that abolitionist movement. You could say that it might be that culmination might be similar to the culmination of the creation of the Republican Party, that there's like a focal point on abolition. I think, however, one of the key distinctions in my interpretation of America and how this American cycle comes into being is that a lot of people like to view the civil rights movement of the 60s as the second reconstruction. And I view it as a continuation of the second abolition and that abolition has really been something that's occupied the almost the entirety of the 20th century and into the 21st because when slavery was abolished the south didn't give up on enslaving black people they just want they just committed themselves to figuring out how to do it without overtly using slavery the language of slavery or the language of racism and so this made abolition way more difficult because you couldn't just say ah we ended slavery good to, you know good to go done you had to you had to start focusing on abolishing all of these many many structures that the south had created and that the the rest of america had condoned that made every facet of black existence unnecessarily unjustly burdened and complicated so you had to do everything and that takes a long time imagine you're trying to abolish something that's that's impact is racist but it's articulated as if it isn't racist and people don't believe you that it's racist in any way that's way more complicated than saying uh slavery is bad we're abolishing slavery and there's a whole bunch of documents saying we're enslaving people it's complicated and that just takes a long long time and i think america has been engaging in that struggle from the turn of 20th century to the present in many ways so yeah that's 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 abolition yeah you said a lot that i kind of want to tease out but i think starting with I think that's a a really hot take that you've provided. A lot of people will consider um, the civil rights movement as um, the second iteration of the Reconstruction movement. But you think of it as a continuance of the abolition stage in the American cycle. Can you talk more about like why there's kind of like dissonance in, in calling the civil rights movement a Reconstructionist era versus like an abolition era? Yeah, I I think hmm. so. It's complicated. Clearly, the civil rights era did help reconstruct the South. You know, we got rid of segregation and all sorts of stuff. And you can draw parallels to how, you know, Reconstruction and the nineteen in the eighteen sixties, you know, 
got rid of that iteration of segregation, which was slavery, and you can draw those parallels and say, yeah, they're the same. But I think the fact that they're kind of the same shows that they are different. And the reason for that is that the progress that we obtained in the civil rights era was a reclamation of the rights that we earned in Reconstruction. And so we're not continuing Reconstruction in that way. We're just abolishing a lot of the impediments that they created to prevent us from doing Reconstruction because, you know, we had the Civil Rights Act, we had the Voting Rights Act, but there's still a lot of other laws that were created after Reconstruction that we still need to abolish. And as time goes on and they look at statistics about how America is divided via housing and income and education, like the divisions still exist. You know, they're not, you know, the brutality of the divisions, the likelihood of getting murdered in the South now just because um, are, are less, but as the Black Lives Matter movement has shown, they still exist. And so I, I, I guess I would say that we're still working to abolish all the many impediments that were created after Reconstruction. And a returning of the rights that were taken away, I don't view that as, that's like being back to square one and not going to step two. You know what I mean? And so, and it's not to be dismissive in any fashion because it's a it's it's a transformational time that made America infinitely better. But you know, we had rights that were afforded to us by making change that was unimaginable in America in the 1860s, and getting those rights back isn't the same type of previously unimaginable change that Reconstruction was. And I think the goal of our society, and this is why I view Obama's presidency as the second Reconstruction, is that that success was a success that people couldn't imagine. Like it was inconceivable in almost every way. Like the people that were new to America, that didn't know America that that well were like, of course, well, it makes sense to have a black president. But the people that had been here for the longest time, like my grandfather just didn't think it was humanly possible. He was like, there's just no way that white people will allow this to happen. And he'd lived through everything. You know, he was in, yeah, he fought in a couple wars. And so, so yeah. And, you know, I will say like, I clearly wasn't alive during the civil rights era. So I can't say how many people thought it would be impossible to get voting rights back. But the fact that we already had the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment meant that people knew that it was possible because it already happened. So, so yeah, does that make sense? It does, yeah. And I think it also, you know, for the first iteration of the American cycle, in that time period, you had mentioned that the founding stage and the abolition stage were taking place at the same time, like simultaneously. And mm -hmm. that was like a, a constant conflict because, you know, that's kind of a stage where a lot of people um, are awakening to this, like this tension, this 
basically hypocrisy of an American democracy in which, you know, how is it that the Constitution will write that all men are are free, but also like exploit um, people of color for their labor? So I, I can see how in the second iteration of the American cycle, like, you know, as Jim Crow is happening, there's also a greater movement, the civil rights movement to abolish Jim Crow laws and to desegregate and to make sure, you know, and it also took a long time, kind of like how yeah, like getting rid talking, of enslavement took a long time too. Yeah, we're talking 60 years, you know, a little over 60 years at the first phase of, you know, founding abolition and like clashing. It's a little bit longer than this one, but it's because it's more complex. And if you look at what happened in the civil rights era, clearly, you know, segregation, Brown v. Board of Education, all sorts of you know, civil rights movement, everything, Voting Rights Act. But the segregationists from the South who were Democrats, they just became Republicans. And so the, the philosophy, the belief in Jim Crow still was shaping American politics. They just changed their name. And now... We would have, instead of overt Jim Crow language, we would have dog whistles. I think, I think, and, and the, the, the solid voting block of the South that was very much exclusively red now. Like that's, that's a Jim Crow block. And that Jim Crow block is a slaveholding, is the progeny of a slaveholding block. And so we're still to this day trying to break that. Like we're trying to abolish that. And if you look at how the Democrats have been successful nationally, they always have had to have a candidate who can get a couple Southern states. They can't get a candidate that's going to win any Southern states. They're not going to get, they're not going to win the White House because of the makeup of the Electoral College and, and, and all that kind of stuff. All of these impediments to democracy that have, that America has made to empower ethnociders. The Democrats can't win at a national level unless they fracture that. And so, you know, you look at Jimmy Carter, Georgia, boom, president, Bill Clinton, Arkansas, won Arkansas, president, Barack Obama, black. He's winning. He got Florida. You know, Virginia became more in play. And if you look at Joe Biden today, the fact that he won Georgia, that kind of did it, you know? And so we're still fighting these same structures of like founding philosophy, founding era stuff. And we're trying to abolish it in all these different facets. That's the nature of it. And, you know, it's that's and, you know, to put the the Biden one in there, like Biden actually and we can talk about this in another one, but he's he's different than um, than Carter and uh, Clinton and Obama and like the type of person uh, mm. he represents in the era that he, he, he is in. But yeah, I think, and I think to a certain extent, looking at the civil rights era as the second reconstruction is pretty optimistic, you know, like it makes people feel good. And I think that's good to like, you know, talk about bring, bring the narrative reconstruction back and say, oh, we had a second reconstruction, Obama's a third reconstruction. Like, look at all this progress. We keep on reconstructing it. It happens at like pretty regular intervals. 
saying it's the second abolitionist movement and that the whole of the 20th century was basically America trying to abolish oppressive structures. That's not that exciting. People don't get too excited about that. That's, that doesn't make you feel good. But I think that's just what it is. And if you look to go back to the transition in the civil rights era where the Democrats became the Republicans and then the Republicans ran campaigns to make sure that they solidified the South and that solid Jim Crow Southern voting bloc became like the foundation that propelled them to national success. It was all dog whistles. You know, there would always be like the Willie Horton ad or the war on drugs or welfare queens or, Mm -hmm. you know, something like that. Even, (laughs) even in, uh, in the 2000 presidential race, John McCain was leading George W. Bush going into South Carolina. And there was a whole telephone phone bank campaign where they called up South Carolinians and said, would you still be interested in voting for John McCain if you knew he had an illegitimate black child? And at the time, John McCain was campaigning through South Carolina with his adopted daughter from Bangladesh. Wow. And so John McCain then lost South Carolina. And then George W. became the Republican nominee and became the president. So like these dog whistle race baiting tactics are still ingrained in American politics. And Mm -hmm. we're still trying to figure out how to abolish them. And so I'd, I'd say we're still in the abolitionist, you know, we're not still in it now, but the the remnants of it, just like the abolitionist movement created reconstruction, like the abolitionist movement and the second one creates the second reconstruction. Yeah, I think this is like a really helpful framing because I know a lot of people, um, and it's very true, a lot of people will kind of be pessimistic you know in that a lot has changed but also a lot hasn't changed but I think it's really important for us to kind of distinguish and parse out these um, stages of the American cycle to remember you know that it's not that you know like clear cut crystal clear it's all very convoluted it's all very interrelated to one another and just because we've kind of moved on from a, a, a stage to a different stage in the American cycle. It doesn't mean we've necessarily gotten rid of the ethnocidal ghosts that, you know, this, this country has been founded on and established on. And it, it's like very embedded in our politics. Yeah. And, you know, like a key thing, and we mentioned this in the last one is America's a very ahistorical society. Like we, mm-hmm. we really act as though 150 years ago was like 2000 years ago. Like it's it's astonishing how far in the past we think 150 years is. You go anywhere else in the world, and they're just like, "That's a nothing. That's an yeah. absolute. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> That's like a weekend." Um, <laughs> you know, and it's so so. What due to that? Like we don't even have like the narrative or the language to describe the flow of our own society, which is just crazy. But this is the flow. This is what it is. And when you see it, it makes that kind of that ahistorical, like ignorant bliss that we like, it gets shattered. But at the same time, it, it makes it really clear, like what you need to do and what the threats are to, to stability. Yeah. I mean, even as we're talking right now, it kind of gives me some more language to 
um, think about last week on January 6th when the Capitol was stormed and to kind of like see how this is, you know, like we talked about last week, how this could be, we're kind of dangling in between like, um, like another founding stage, but realizing that kind of like this, how the media is calling this Trumpism and like how we need to defeat Trumpism. I, I feel like that is just like another, that's just another like resurrection of the, the a founding stage and how, yeah, I was kind of wondering too, like if we're going to kind of bypass the founding stage and move straight into abolition. <laughs> so, you know, the, the idea, the hope is that we break the cycle and that we actually create a framework where reconstruction can continue. Like the, the most alarming thing about the cycle is that the two eras of reconstruction at best take up 20 years. Like we know that the first founding and abolitionist era combined are about 60 and that the second founding abolition was about 100. And the redemption era that came after Reconstruction and that preceded the second founding was about 30 years. So we, as a country, have about two decades of trying to do good as opposed to trying to justify bad while then believing you can still do good. (laughs) Like, ugh. (laughs) Like, <laughs> that's a problem. So I think the, the idea is to make a, a discourse and a, an awareness and a language where you can just continue reconstruction for at least as long as you would do redemption, you know? <laughs> like, if, if give reconstruction an uninterrupted 30-year attempt. Lots of cool stuff could happen. That's just not a thing that's ever happened. And so that's kind of the thinking. Yeah. Let's actually spend like maybe a couple of minutes talking about something that is being talked about a lot lately. And that's the Senate filibuster, which we know arose in the Jim Crow era to reinforce ethnocidal policies. How, I guess like, would it, be fair to say that we are now attempting an abolition stage um, in eliminating the Senate filibuster? Um, or are we just kind of, yeah, I mean, how would you characterize this? Because I, I feel strongly that the Senate filibuster is an abolitionist, like eliminating the Senate filibuster is an abolitionist policy. Yeah. So, no, I, I, I totally agree. You know, you, you you sent me a link to about this this new book that came out. This name is escaping me, but it's all about the filibuster. And you know the origin of the filibuster actually wasn't Jim Crow. It was the first founding era. John C. Calhoun was a senator from South Carolina, and he uh, didn't like all of these abolitionist ideas that would prevent the spreading of slavery throughout America, and so he would. He started creating senatorial procedures to prevent the passage of legislation. And that procedure became the filibuster. And so I think the thing that's interesting about the filibuster is 
is it only really seems to get used in a, American society in order to prevent racial equity and progress. So it happened in the abolitionist era. And, you know, clearly there were, I think there were like some spikes, some moments that happened during Reconstruction. But for the most part, Reconstruction was dominated by the Republican Party. And they were able to pass legislation. One of the main concerns was not necessarily like the Senate getting in the way, but Ku Klux Klan and all these other entities, like literally just killing and terrorizing people. They had to have military in the South all the time to prevent the constant terrorism that was being, you know, created by white terrorists. But during the, during the era after Reconstruction, the filibuster wasn't that big of a deal. During Jim Crow, once ideas to abolish Jim Crow started happening, the filibuster came back, came back. And to prevent more racial equality. And I, and I don't think it's a big surprise that the filibuster came back in full effect when America had its first black president. That's just not a surprise. And so I think one of the big issues for the U.S. and how ahistorical we are is that we don't really know or care to know about the origins of of various like structures and concepts and we in turn just imagine that they organically sprouted up from some good and just democratic idea and so the filibuster is just this thing that exists now and we just assume that it's there for a good reason when it's not it's not there for a good reason at all and i think when you can have this type of conversation with the American cycle and structuring things, it becomes easy to say, this thing is bad at its root. Why should it be here? Like, why, why would it make sense to try to modify this structure that was created purely to oppress people and try to make it not oppressive? Just get rid of it. Call it a day. Done. Easy. It shouldn't be here. And, you know, when you have that larger breadth of history, it's easier to see that. And I think, you know, the hope is as, you know, Congress gets more diverse and and more white Americans in Congress, you know, are partners and allies with people of color, it just becomes really easy to make this argument. Like, why, how could you ever justify the continuation of a structure that was created to oppress your friend doesn't make any sense. And so, you know, yeah. So yeah, Yeah. it's bad. Yeah. I think that's, I I think the book was called kill switch. I think, I think that's the book's name from the NPR article, I think, but Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think that's really, important to highlight like eliminating the senate filibuster is essential to breaking out of the american cycle because it's it's become kind of like a norm in the senate honestly that if one senator dissents or expresses disapproval of something passing i mean mm-hmm. that kind of like that kind of kickstarts the whole entire process of filibustering like a really great progressive policy for moving forward so and it, it really just puts like a a wrench in the gears 
of democracy as a whole because mm -hmm. the Senate is not even proportional representation. You know, like it's each state has equal representation. And now what happens is that the slave owning states have the capacity to prevent the legislation that comes from the House of ever making it to the president's desk. So the body that America has that's based around representing the people, it's not able to get anything done because the body that doesn't represent the people, it just represents states, has made it so that if a minority of states, and these minority of states are just overtly racist, don't agree with the policy, then it can't happen. That's crazy. Like there's just no reason to justify that making any sense. You know, if it's easy to justify something making sense when you don't know the history or the reason for it existing, you just kind of like fabricate something where it's like, oh, this is just to make sure that we have so much consent that when it gets to the president's desk, it's it's unanimous and there's no like, no, nah, that's nonsense. Like we democracies are about majority, not two thirds. It, it's like that'd be the equivalent of saying to become president and to have power as president, you have to get 66% of the vote. It's crazy. You, you put, <laughs> I mean, ethnociders will ethnocide, as you've said before. <laughs> and I think that's, that's something that you wrote in last week's SEL newsletter about ethnociders is that because the culture of destroying culture while keeping people's bodies to exploit is so detrimental to the ethnocider that they will have to make up lies to tell themselves to make them feel better about why it is that they are destroying culture and preventing like true progress from from happening in this country. Yeah, 100%. And it's it's a really basic idea where like if I and this goes into the idea of bad faith, which is just so grounded in just American existence top to bottom, is if I know I'm going to lie to you, like my goal in my interaction with you is to deceive you, like that's, I'm aware of it. And when you find out that deception, the onus is on you to uh, not hang out with me because you know that I'm a liar. Simple. But there's the other type of bad faith, which is uh, existential where I lie to myself. Like I lie to myself and I think a lie is the truth. And now when I interact with somebody, I believe I'm being truthful, but that's only because I'm delusional. I'm still just continuing a lie. If you're an, if you engage in ethnocide, if you're an ethnocider, you either are fully committed to the notion that like, I'm just exploiting other people because they're just not people and it doesn't really matter. But even if you believe that, the lie that you're telling yourself is that those people aren't people. <laughs> so you're justifying the exploitation by saying human beings aren't human beings. That's why I can do this. And so you have to lie to yourself to justify being inhumane. Just foundational to being an ethnocidal person um, or having an ethnocidal society. And there's just so much of America that's based around that type of a core lie. And the thing that makes it even more like makes it it's obvious, but it makes it confusing is if I let's say let's say it's the Civil War and it's quite clearly a war that's about slavery. And then I'm the South. I lose it. I feel pretty embarrassed and that 
throughout history, they're going to say that the whole South was horrible people. And I believe the South aren't horrible people. So I need to change the narrative. So I'll change the narrative to say that the, the war was about states' rights. I know it's about slavery, but states' rights sounds better because the right that those states are supposed to have is the right to enslave people. So now it sounds better. And I know I'm lying, but I've convinced myself that it's like kind of a lie. Fast forward 100 years and people have these textbooks that just say that it's about states' rights, states' rights, states' rights, states' rights. Now they wake up and they go, it's about states' rights. It's not about slavery. They don't even know that they're professing a lie. They really, really believe that they're professing the truth. So it's not even that like they're lying to themselves, which some of them very well may be. It's that like they only know lies. And, you know, America has that dilemma for a lot of things. And, you know, you could say to a lesser extent, the filibuster is that where we have a, a narrative that it has nothing to do with uh, racism. When, in fact, it has everything to do about racism. And so if you if you try to have conversations that are just based on lies, you can't really win. <laughs> Like the other team is going to be able to lie in some fashion to to change it and to win. Um, and so, so yeah, but I guess one thing I, I, I wanted to add about like abolition and connected to what happened last week is, you know, like the people that opposed abolition in the 1850s, those people became Confederates. And then those Confederates became Ku Klux Klan members. And then those Ku Klux Klan members became the redeemers that created policies. And so, you know, even though we are going through different stages, it's very possible for like the same person or the same type of people to profess the same ideology just with different names through each stage. And so, so, so yeah, like, Abolition, and that kind of goes back to like the narrative of abolition, where like, yes, abolition is something that it makes sense that we're talking about now. But I think we're actually in another stage beyond abolition, such as reconstruction, where we can have a discourse about reconstructing things. Like within that reconstruction, there will be a certain level of abolition. We will abolish certain things or abolish things to a certain degree, but we're doing it to reconstruct. We're not doing it just for the sake of abolishing because there's like a different level of agency that you have in the dynamic. Mm, that's really interesting. Yeah, and I appreciate that a lot. I think that gives a lot more hope to people knowing that we could be revisiting, that we could be, you know, escaping the cycle and moving on to like more hopeful things and better policies that are actually progressive and are actually liberating. I do want to ask because another component of SEL focuses on cultivating utopia. Do you look at the, at the previous like iterations of abolition to think about like how to cultivate utopia or is that more something that is in the third stage reconstruction that you look towards? Or, you know, how can we look at 
previous iterations of abolition to cultivate Aftopia? Yeah, it's a great question. So I, I guess I'd say, so we have kind of like three stages of like change at SEO. We're like the first one is like raising awareness and combating ethnocide. You know what I mean? And I think abolition in many ways is just that, you know, where you're combating it. You are the, like the goal is just to abolish that thing. We're combating it. And then we have like the next stage, which is, you know, so if ethnocide is the destruction of culture, like what do you do beyond just combating it? And you create culture, which we call ethnogenesis or cultural naissance, which is means the birth of culture, cultural birth. And so I think reconstruction in many ways is the action of trying to create new culture. Um, the third stage we have, we use Evtopia. We, we, we say that language quite a bit. But like Evtopia and ethnogenesis are like more interwoven than you think because the idea is that ethnogenesis isn't a one-off. It's something that's sustainable, that evolves. Um, may, you know, new names may, might happen as you create culture. So you need to have like an anchoring name for a sustainable good place. And that's, that's Evtopia. And, and at the same time, like there's plenty of places that like don't have the issues that America has where like there's really not as much of a demand to make new culture. You know, they, like there's already a culture that's founded with an attachment to place and everyone kind of understands that that culture is going to evolve with time and like new people are going to show up and people are going to leave and there's going to be like a disaster here and a disaster there. And so it'll be different, but like, it's just the difference is how the culture is, is naturally going to like change based on an infinite amount of variables, but there's going to be like a word or a language that focuses like the beliefs of the people there to keep that place sustainable. And like a lot of, like in, in Asia, you know, a lot of the philosophical practices and the more you learn about like just Asian languages, like casual usage of words that actually have like really deep philosophical foundations. It's like really fascinating that we just don't have an English or like American English. But like I reference this one word, um, Moai, this Japanese word, just it's like a, a, a basically like a philosophical understanding of the importance of long lasting friendships. And then you create them and sustain them. And like that's your Moai. So Evtopia, in many ways, I guess, exists more in reconstruction. But reconstruction in the US is, is the transition from getting from like a, a destructive dystopian norm into just a a constructive, nurturing, Evtopian norm, which in many ways, a lot of other places have been engaging in that process for as long as they know that they've been alive. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about it more in the next episode. <laughs> <laughs> I think abolition is super important. It is kind of a way for us to shine. It's what, sorry. It's the precursor, you know? Like it's, it's mm -hmm. to do it mm -hmm. for, you know? But you just yeah. can't. And only exist to abolish eventually you'll abolish what you intended to abolish and if you don't know what to do next well another founding yeah. cycle could take place again yeah <laughs> <laughs> that would be problematic. We'll yeah see. yeah 
yeah. So I think abolition is, is a really great, you know, setup for the next episode that we're going to talk about. Definitely a way for us to shine light on more truth and to kind of expose the bad faith of, of American morality and politics. Is there anything else that you want to add about abolition? What listeners need to know? I don't know. Like, I, I guess I'd say is like abolition is really an important part of the cycle. Like it's the first part of combating ethnocide. We just have to make sure that we have to be able to think beyond abolition. We have to be able to think of a narrative where we succeed. And if we abolish what we want to abolish, then we should be able to create what we want to create. And I think sometimes, and this is partially why I don't consider the civil rights era of the 60s as like a second reconstruction, because we still talk about abolition, you know, like, like we're still having a, a discourse about abolition. And when we, and when people, especially in the black community, think about environment without ethnocide, it's all like science fiction or Afrofuturism. It's, it's a world that existed bef- without colonization, like an untouched black utopia. So like the ideas that we should be thinking about, about how to live, we should be thinking about them in ways that aren't fiction. And if you only think about abolition and you only think about an existence without abolition as fictional, you're clearly going to have like a, an inherently reactive existence and you won't be able to like proactively do good things. And so I think that's just, that's like a key thing. So, you know, that's it. Perfect. Thank you so much, Barrett. Please follow us on all social media platforms at SEL.community. Don't forget to subscribe to SEL's newsletter, The Word, for a weekly dose of something liberating at the top of your week. And make sure to tune in for the next episode as we continue a deeper dive into the American cycle. Thanks, everyone. Bye.